The words that I'd like to direct your attention to this morning are found in the book of Colossians. In chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me again in prayer. Father, you've brought all of us here this morning that we might learn from you. Lord, we we want to be taught. We want to learn. We want the truth. I pray that You would minister to us through Your Word. That Your truth would be clear. Not just to our minds, but to our hearts. that, that That we would grow. That we would grow in our understanding. That we would grow in our affections. Lord, that, that it would have an impact to change how we think and the choices that we make. That really we would be growing in Christ's likeness as individuals and as a body of believers. We need help. We know that just coming to church is not enough. Just listening to your word is not, not enough for many Many heard you speak directly to them while you were here upon the earth, Christ. They had ears, but they did not have ears to hear. And so we ask that you would give us ears to hear. That none of us would fall short of the promises that you have purchased on our behalf. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Historian Stephen Ambrose, in his book uh, about World War II called Citizen Soldiers, presents multiple accounts of heroism demonstrated by World War II medics. Bravest man I ever saw. He came running right through the machine gun fire and put a tourniquet on my arm. Recounted an infantryman hit by a bullet that ripped right through his upper arm. The medic got hit by the concussion from an 88. His shoulder was right out of his socket. He should have gone back to the station, but as he later explained, there were just too many wounded guys to work on. So I took some codeine and morphine. I couldn't raise my arm beyond my waist. So here I was trying to work on these wounded guys with one hand. That's just one account of many that we could cite. Many of you are familiar with others. But what would you conclude if you personally witnessed such acts of heroism? What what would you believe about the motives? What was driving these medics to risk their lives for these wounded men? 
I think you would at least conclude that they really cared about these soldiers they were seeking to attend to. The risks, the effort, the struggle on their behalf are manifest proof that those medics care for those soldiers. And in a similar way, Paul's suffering, Paul's laboring and striving for the the churches of Colossae and Laodicea, that effort, the risks that he's taking are manifest proof that he sincerely cares for their welfare. And that's what he wants them to recognize as he presents this paragraph to them in this letter. So far in our study of Colossians, not only has Paul demonstrated the preeminence of Christ that we should recognize, but beginning in chapter 1, verse 24, he began to explain his approach to ministry, his philosophy of ministry, or the, the fundamentals of what makes a good ministry. And so far we've looked at the cost in verse 24 of chapter 1, the responsibility of preaching, 25 and 27. Last week we looked at his aim, which was to bring about the spiritual maturity of the church. And today in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, I want to look at his struggle. You could think of it as his motives, what's driving him. And he articulates that as the spiritual stability of the church. So I've broken down this passage really into the four basic points. His struggle in verse 1, his objectives in verse 2 and 3, Paul's concern in verse 4, and then finally in verse 5, he explains his joy. Let's look first of all at his struggle. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those that allow to see you, and for all that have not seen me face to face. That word struggle, it's the same word we saw last week, the root of it, at least in struggling. It depicts a fighter or a wrestler in mortal combat who's seeking to um, advance on an opponent or maybe even overthrow the opponent. Notice that, that Paul wants them to know about his struggles. He's, he's not hiding this. He's not being coy. He wants them to know about the suffering and the risks and the struggles on their behalf. Because he wants them to grasp that he's struggling for it, if he's that concerned, how much more should they be concerned? I mean, it's their souls. And so he's not puffing himself here. He's not puffing himself up. He's not bragging about how hard he works. He's just wanting to be clear on why he's burning himself out. And he wants them to know it's for their sakes. That they would realize for themselves how important it is that they not be led astray from Christ. When when people take great personal risks or you see them laboring to the point of exhaustion for your sake. You have confidence that they genuinely care about you. Or at least it demonstrates their sincere concern. Or, 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 or their, their, their seriousness at which they're approaching 
their labor on your behalf. One of my favorite seminary professors uh, was known for flooding the papers that we would turn into him with red ink. In fact, it, often it seemed like there were, he had written more on our papers in red ink than we actually had written in black. And th- this was far from discouraging, though. I mean, maybe initially, but after the shock wore off of how much we needed to work on, it really stirred us up to, to greater faithfulness because if that professor took our work so seriously that he was willing to spend what looked like as much time as we spent on writing the paper and just giving us feedback on how we could improve, then he knew something about how serious our work was that maybe we weren't aware of. And it stirred us up. How much more seriously should we take our responsibility in ministry? And if Paul struggled so intensely for their spiritual welfare... The Colossians should wonder the same thing. If he's struggling this intensely on our behalf, how seriously should we be taking these issues for ourselves? So Paul then lists, after explaining this struggle, he lists primary objectives that he's seeking to bring about in his struggle for them. Like just like when, a, when an EMT or a medic comes a, 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 across a casualty, they have to assess what they need to do. And they, they have primary objectives. They've got to stop the bleeding. They've got to numb the pain. They've got to prevent further infection from setting in. I'm not an EMT or a medic, so I have no idea what they need to do. But I'm sure there are things they've got to make sure take place. Well, Paul's primary objectives in ministry are listed here. He wants to encourage their hearts. He wants to unite them together in love. And he wants to teach so that they would all have a full or complete understanding of all that is revealed in Christ. And these three things really are in line with his previous statement in verse 28 of chapter 1. That his aim is to see every man complete in Christ or mature in Christ which is also in line with Christ's goal for the church, that every man would be presented blameless and above reproach before him. Chapter 1, verse 22. And so these these three objectives really just give a little bit more specificity on what spiritual maturity looks like. How does one know if they're growing in spiritual maturity? Well, these objectives would tell you. Are you encouraging hearts? Are you being united with other believers in love? And are you growing in your understanding of the Word of God? He starts with noting that spiritual maturity begins as hearts are encouraged. Look at verse 2. His goal is that their hearts may be encouraged. That that word encouraged is a very familiar one. It's the word parakaleo. The paraclete is what the Holy Spirit is called in the book of John. The comforter is how it's translated. The word uh, parakaleo could be translated exhort. Uh, It could be like here encourage or to appeal to or urge. Quite simply, it just means to come alongside another person. 
That could be to kind of spur them on. It could be to comfort them, to console them. It could entail warning or teaching. It's, it's kind of the work that a coach would do. How a coach would come alongside an athlete and give them feedback or encourage them or tell them what they're doing wrong or what they can continue to improve in. So that they would be more productive as an athlete. And it's interesting that Paul actually uses this word to encourage or to exhort uh, to describe his preaching ministry multiple times. And this is how Paul is really using it in this verse. Encouragement, as it's used here, is teaching that seeks to bring about a positive change. So it's not just seeking to inform the mind, but actually affect the affections. And then that would lead to action in line with the truth. Right? The Word of God says this, therefore, this is how I should think, this is how I should feel, this is how I should live. It's teaching that transforms. And notice that Paul's exhortation or encouragement is aimed at the heart. Right? In, in the Scripture, the heart is the inner man. How we think, how we feel, what is it, what's, what's, what's true about us in our inner selves, who we really are, why we do what we do. Paul wants to affect our thinking, our affections, our choices. He wants to bring about obedience from the heart, as he says in Romans chapter 6, verse 17. And the result of this encouragement and teaching the body is that as individuals are trained and encouraged and strengthened their hearts, that the body would then be united together in love. As all are receiving this truth and all are being affected by it, the body as a whole begins to grow. And not just grow in having fat heads, but be, grow in being knit together in love. Right? He says, being knit together in love. Unity is the inevitable effect of when people begin to live for something other than themselves. You might recall that after our nation was attacked by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor, most of the people in our country felt this innate sense of responsibility to do their part in the war. Those who could not fight still served as civilians in docks and helping build ships or in filling in needs where they might be. And we call this patriotism or love of country. Well, in the, in the church, we call it a love for the body of Christ and a love for Christ. And Paul metaphorically describes this unity as being knit together. Now, when a person knits, they're, they're binding multiple threads together to, to make a blanket or a scarf or some, some article of clothing. And if one thread breaks, the whole could unravel, or at least the, that it could be severely damaged. In fact, when I was preparing this message a bit this morning, going over it again, I recognized I was actually cuddled up with a, a blanket that had been knit for me by my sister. And, and it, again, each thread matters because if 
one is separated, the whole can unravel. And yet it's not the threads that we pay attention to. It's the whole. The thread matters because of their part in the work of a whole. Now, sometimes gifted ladies will give things that have been knitted or sewn uh, to people uh, as uh, Christmas gifts. And th- those are often really you know, great blessings to have. Well, imagine if you'd gotten like a blanket every year uh, for Christmas. And then one year that that lady presented you a, a, just a single thread of yarn. And what would you conclude? Would you be impressed? You want to be thankful, but you'd wonder like, what? What am I going to do with this? I mean, single threads get thrown away. They're not useful. They're not impressive. What matters is the threads being woven together into the single article. And likewise, God didn't save you just to present you individually before him holy and blameless. He saved you to be part of the church. Your significance is tied to the significance of the other members of the body of Christ. What matters is the church. He's seeking to build the church up for his glory. Yes, he cares about each one of us individually. But the goal, the the whole is the goal. The bride of Christ is the church. And so this is just one reason why there's no such thing as a maverick Christian, a lone ranger. Because what's the use of a single thread? That's like saying, God, this is what I, this is, this is my Christmas gift. Right? Paul, yes, Paul labored and, and, and suffered and, and, and strove with all his might as he describes in Philippians, to be more Christ-like. He pursued Christian maturity with all his heart, and yet he didn't just focus on himself. He, was, he spent himself for the rest of the body. We have to wake up. We're so individualistic as a nation. We have to wake up. That is American. It's not biblical. Yes, you matter, but it's the church that really matters. You matter because the church matters. And so we got to get away from just caring about our family, just caring about our own struggles with sin, our own fights. We have to be just as concerned about one another. We've already seen that, that Paul's aim in ministry is for the church, the whole church to grow up into maturity. And here he notes that, that, that an expression of that maturity is love uniting the members together. And there's a remarkable parallel of this passage with Ephesians chapter 4. You guys are very familiar with Ephesians 4. But I just want to show this parallel even a little bit closer here. Look at verse 15 of Ephesians 4. Paul writes, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and same word that's used here held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, each part matters, but when each part is working properly, the goal is it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Notice the emphasis on love. 
Notice the emphasis on being joined together. Right? The expected result also of love is what? Edification. Building up. Like, you would ex- if love is there, the effect of love should be edification. In other words, if you're not being edified within a church, you have to, you have to ask, is, is there love? Right? You expect water to quench thirst. If you're drinking water and your thirst isn't being quenched, maybe it's salt water, something's wrong, it's corrupted. Right? You expect food to provide nourishment. You, you expect medicine to heal. Likewise, the effect of love, if it's real love, will be edification, growth spiritually. And I say that because often we think the loving thing to do is just affirm people. Tell them what they want to hear. But if that's not actually helping them towards Christ's likeness, it ain't love. But the converse is also true. If there's no love in ministry, there's likely no edification taking place. And this, this was the underlying point Paul was trying to make to the Corinthians. Right? If you can do all sorts of great things and make great sacrifices, offer your body up to be burned. But if you have not love, you're just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You're not helpful, in other words. I mean, have you ever met Christians that were clearly manifestly strong in their understanding of the Word of God? Or who were just faithful, diligent servants? Or they, they would just give super generously. And yet, you were never convinced that, that they really had a sincere care for you. you. You didn't look down upon them, but you just, you were impressed by them, but you weren't, you just weren't, honestly, you just weren't convinced that they really cared about you. It was, they were doing their responsibility, or they're just trying to be faithful. They're trying to prove their own value to the church. How does this disconnect happen? Why is it that there are so many knowledgeable Christians that know the Word of God so well, and yet they struggle to love people? Like really love people, really care about what's in another person's best interest. Why, Why does that happen? Well, as you know, love is an affection there's more to it than that, but it, it's rooted in the affections. Well, the affections are the innermost part of our soul, our being. And therefore, they're easy to ignore. They're also the, the hardest for us to cultivate. It's not hard to perform an action. In fact, and it's not hard to learn, to gain more information. But it's really hard to have our affections changed. And to do the work necessary to confront the affections. And to cultivate those affections towards Christ's likeness. So they're hard to cultivate. Secondly, they're easily neglected because they remain unseen. It's like the attic in a person's house or the garage. Some of you people know houses that the living room and the kitchen look immaculate. 
And that you, you open a door and you realize, whoa, it's like a tornado went through here. Well, why is that? Well, it's because that's just not what people see. And so it's easy just to put the focus on what people see. Thirdly, this, re- this happens because really of idolatry. All right, we can continue to hold on to idols in our heart that nobody's ever going to see. And we can show, we can show ourselves being faithful in all our hard work and diligence and people are impressed by how much we serve. We can give super generously and we can, we can just impress people with how much systematic theology we know and biblical theology. But nobody's going to be able to see into our hearts. Nobody's going to really see what we really love. And so we can hold fast our affections can just cling to our idols and yet everybody around us can be convinced that we love Christ. And in this sense, we're like Judas. Everybody convinced of our faithfulness while our hearts are far from him. There's a warning here. Do not neglect your affections. It's not enough just to know what the Bible says. It's not enough just to do what the Bible says. But your heart needs to be changed. God is not interested in what others think of you, your reputation. For that matter, he's not just interested in you. He wants all of the body to grow in their affections and in their knowledge and in their faithfulness to Him. He wants the whole body to be built up in love. So Paul's objective, he wants the church to be encouraged by hearing about his struggle on their behalf. He wants them to have their hearts be encouraged. He wants, he wants them to, to also be built up in love. And now he says he wants them to grow in their knowledge. Notice how he describes this. To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And just notice the language of wealth here, like riches of full assurance, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The greatest kind of wealth anybody could ever possess is to have a full understanding of Christ. And that that word full assurance that's used there means to have absolute certainty, complete Confidence in what God has revealed in Christ. And so, brings up the question, how does one go about growing in their understanding of Christ? If, this is, if, if he possesses all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, how do I tap into that? Well, it's implied in what Paul is saying. It's, it's what he's trying to teach. One taps into this by receiving instruction from the Word of God. So you recognize that Paul's talking about his ministry of preaching and teaching. He recognizes 
that just simply hearing the gospel and being transformed and born again is not sufficient. He wants to preach the gospel really clearly that people might be saved. But his goal doesn't end there. He recognizes that no, his burden, what he's struggling for is that not only would people be saved, but that they would grow up into maturity and reach all the full riches of knowledge. Being born again does not automatically fill people with knowledge and wisdom. They need to continue to grow and learn. Nor does knowledge and wisdom just come inevitably as a person is a Christian and just over time they just slowly grow. Just like kids slowly grow up over time and they get bigger. Now you have to feed them, right? And give them water and other things. But... But that's actually not the case with Christians. Christians might not ever really grow if they're not feeding upon the Word of God. Paul knows this. See, Paul wants to continue to preach to them everything that has been revealed to him regarding Christ. In other words, all of what the Old Testament reveals and the New Testament, the whole council. Right? And that's why he told Timothy and Titus, and all future pastors to preach the word and to grow in our knowledge of Christ. Therefore, it means that we, it requires that we grow in our understanding of all that has been revealed to us in Scripture. Paul's words in this passage also indicate that Christ is the key to understanding what the Bible teaches to unlocking the mysteries of the Scriptures. If you don't have the key, you're not going to have any hope of getting at the treasure. right? People could study the Word of God all their life, but if they're not in Christ, they're not really learning the truth. They're not getting at the real riches. They have the treasure chest in front of them, but they, they can't unlock it. But then even just having the key, that's, that's just the beginning If you turn the lock and you open the chest, you'll soon find that that treasure chest is abounding in treasure, abounding in wealth. And the more you dig into that treasure chest, the more bottomless you realize that treasure chest is. And this is why Paul says that his aim in teaching is to reveal all the hidden treasures found in Christ. Now, if a miner came to you and told you that they had incontrovertible evidence that your house was sitting on a diamond mine, would you just be content to know that that's true? Or would you do something about it and dig? See, notice all the treasures of wisdom, all are found in Christ. See, millions and if not billions of dollars are spent every year at academic institutions, universities, research facilities, people craving knowledge, craving understanding, craving wisdom that they might know how to live a better life or to help humanity, how to improve things through technology, through agriculture, through writing and whatever means possible. How can we Gain wisdom. How can we gain understanding? The world is craving it. And right here we're told all that we really need to know is found here in Christ and what He's revealed in His Word. 
All a person really needs to know is right here in your hands. But the wisdom and understanding isn't blatantly obvious. Like it's hidden. Not that it's, you can't find it out, but you've got to work. You've got to dig. You've got to spend time in it. You've got to study it. You've got to put effort into it. Just like if you're told you're, you're sitting on a diamond mine, just recognizing it doesn't make you rich. You've got to get those diamonds. You've got to dig for them. You've got to put forth the work, the effort. Right? If all you do is rake the surface of the word, all you're going to end up with is, is leaves. But it's when you dig that you find the diamonds. And whether you see them and take them for yourself or you just leave them there, that, that's really up to you. But they're there. All the treasures of wisdom. So the question is, do you want to possess such riches? Again, just imagine somebody told you your house is sitting on a diamond mine. And that diamond mine would give you access to more wealth than is currently possessed in all the world. I don't know how much wealth there is in all the world. Just think trillions and trillions of dollars. It's right there under your house. And you decide, after hearing that, that you're going to commit your life to becoming an attorney. Because you heard that attorneys make a lot of money. And so you work really hard and you get into law school and then you work for decades, often 70, 80 hours a week, because you're going to make a lot of money. Now, that's, that's not a waste. But is that what's best? When all the while there's a diamond mine that remains buried beneath your home? I say that because there's, there's many Christians who are burning themselves out, seeking satisfaction, seeking contentment, seeking wisdom so that they might know how to have the life that God has designed for them. And, and often they do, they labor. And yet they're also quite miserable. And it's because they neglect the one thing that is necessary. As Jesus told Martha, 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 you are anxious and worried about so many things. But one thing is necessary. Just one thing. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is really just a, a question of faith. Do you really believe the Bible holds all the treasures of wisdom and understanding? As Peter says, all that you need for life and godliness. Do you believe that? Is it, is it really sweeter than honeycomb? Will it, will it really give you more wisdom and understanding than college professors? as implied in Psalm 119? Or is that just hyperbole? Is that just propaganda? Do you read it then? Do you study it? Do you devote yourself to it? 
Do you devour it and dig into it? Or, or are you just content to let your Bible decorate your bookcase so that when people come over, they know you're a Christian? Like, in your mind, is that where all the treasure is? Or is it in your portfolio? Or in your lockbox? Paul wants the Colossians to understand there's so much more. And, and that it will make a massive difference if they understand it. And so these three objectives are what Paul's seeking to bring about in his preaching and teaching. But not only is he seeking to bring about these objectives, he's, there's something he's also trying to prevent. And he addresses this in verse 4. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So there's a real threat that's prompting Paul in his laboring and striving. Not only does he, see the, want, does he want the church to grow up into maturity, but he realizes there's a major threat on the loose that can prevent that from taking place. The word delude here means to deceive such as in James 1.22, where he writes, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The word means to, to beguile, to double cross, to hoodwink, to befool, dupe, cheat, defraud, mislead. It's like the email that a man received from a guy in Africa who said that if he spent money on a plane ticket for him, that he would split with him a million dollars worth of diamonds that he had found. He just needs the money for the plane ticket. And then when he got back, he'd split the millions of dollars worth of diamonds. Right? It's, it's a fraud. And likewise, many Christians are duped into believing nonsense just because it's plausible. Really because there's something about what they hear that appeals to them. They believe the lie because there's something about the lie that they want to be true. There are many so-called Christians who don't believe the Bible is really God's word because experts have told them that we can't really know what Jesus said because the Bible's been corrupted by his followers. And so because they've been trained at secular institutions, they alone know what Jesus really said and what was corrupted. Many so-called Christians believe homosexuality is endorsed by God. Because after all, God is love and love is love. Therefore, all those commandments that, that are given in the Bible against homosexuality are just misunderstandings. Many so-called Christians believe that they just have to tr they should have more trust in a prophecy made by a worship leader in the middle of a 10-minute worship song than in the explicit words of scripture or in the the ranting preacher who tells them that that God wants somebody in this place today to become wealthy, to become a millionaire, but they just have to exercise faith by giving my ministry another hundred dollars. And if they give, if they exercise that faith, then God's going to want to make them wealthy. 
Many so-called Christians believe that the book of Genesis is just a, a Hebrew myth. Really no different than the Iliad or the Odyssey. Many so-called Christians believe the Pope is the vicar of Christ on earth. And that his, his words carry the same authority as Christ's. Many Christians think they don't have to submit to an authority simply by claiming that authority is acting tyrannically. I don't like what he says, so I don't have to follow him. Many so-called Christians think boys can be girls and girls can be boys because gender, after all, is just decided by an individual person. Many so-called Christians think that in order to truly believe, one's faith has to be tested. It has to be deconstructed. Despite the fact that everybody who goes through this process of deconstructing their faith ends up abandoning the faith. Where does such nonsense come from? Why do so many people buy into such claims? What's this Paul says here? It's because those claims are somewhat plausible. There's something in the claims that's attractive. And we, we believe it because we want to believe it. Satan knows how to play us like a fiddle. He knows what will lure us away. He's not stupid. Right? Eve, did God really say? You know the issue, Eve. God is worried that you're going to be like him. And then the fruit was desirable to make one wise. He knows how to tap into our lusts and to tell us what we want to hear. And so Paul is really concerned that these Colossians will be spiritually deceived by this false teaching. And he wants to do everything he can to avert such a a spiritual hijacking. But it's also why Paul rejoices as he hears that the Colossians, despite the false teaching that they're being faced with, have not been led astray. And that's what he gets to in verse 5. He says, Though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing. And what's he rejoice in? Not that they're giving him lots of money. Not that they're just praying on his behalf. Not that they're buying his books. He rejoices to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is a unique word, that word, look at it, good order. It's actually a military term. It's only used here in the New Testament. It refers to having disciplined and orderly ranks. See, Paul knows the Colossian church is being attacked. But the people there are not breaking ranks. They're, they're holding the line against the invaders. The attackers are, are lobbing volleys into the lines. And, and despite the ferocity of the attack, the lines don't break. If, if some people on the front lines are knocked down, then other soldiers jump right in and take their place. It, it's, it's like the... the They're held together. 
The wounded are immediately attended to and cared for. The gaps are closed again by fresh warriors after each attack. And rather than every man running for his own life, each man continues to do their part for the sake of the whole. Because they no longer live for themselves, but they live for Christ. And so Paul is rejoicing that despite the attack that's come against them so far, the lines have not broken. They've remained firm. But he's anxious, he's concerned that they might get worn out. They might start to grow weary in doing good. And so he longs to come to them. He wants to teach them. That's why he's sending them this letter to reaffirm them in their faith so that they don't break. And so his point in saying that he's with them in spirit, it's very similar to how we use the phrase today. He wants them to know that he's, he's keenly attuned to what's going on in Colossae. Just like a, a field commander is gravely concerned about what's going on on the outposts, on their front lines. Are, are those outposts under siege? Are they being attacked? Are they holding firm? The spiritual health of the Colossians is of utmost importance to the Apostle Paul. And so he's, he's telling them these things because he wants them to know how seriously they should take their situation. I'm laboring, I'm suffering for your sakes because you're in grave danger, whether you realize it or not. And like Paul, I can say, as, as I consider grace and truth, I too can rejoice because I am, it's very evident how this body hungers for the Word of God. In fact, that's, that's probably the only reason you're here. Because of the Word of God and because of the care you have for one another. In fact, people ask about how the church is doing, and that's what I talk about. There's no other place I'd want to be because the people genuinely care about one another here. It's not a front. That's why I can't start the service on time. <laughs> Break people up. And you love the Word. And I rejoice in that. Well, at the same time, I am also anxious, especially when I see commitment to regular fellowship begin to lag in various individuals. Or when people tell me they're just struggling to get regular time in the Word of God or they're struggling to pray. It's just if you had a, if you had a daughter that, that struggled with anorexia. And she get, let's say she has some help, she gets over it, but then one day you start to notice she's starting to lose weight. Well, it may be that she's just eating better, but it also could be that's something that she's fallen under the deception of that disease. It's a grave warning sign at least. And so when I hear of people neglecting the word and prayer and fellowship, I'm, I'm not shocked. But I am filled with concern. Just like a battlefield medic isn't shocked when they're brought a casualty, a wounded soldier. That's what you expect to happen. It's a warfare. It, it, it's, it's a battle. And yet at the same time, 
there's grave concern. That person's bleeding. That person's hurting. That person needs care. That person needs attention. Yes, it may be what's expected, but it's not good. And it's really concerning when the medic is more concerned about the injury than the soldier. Right? The soldier might not be concerned by the fact that they're losing pints of blood or that their leg, their wounded leg smells like moldy cheese or that they're starting to lose consciousness. But they should be. And even if they're not, that medic's going to do everything he can to keep that person alive. And likewise, you might not be that concerned about your neglect of the word or lacking time to pray or not attending church or your disconnectedness with others in the church. You might not be concerned about a growing increase in your worldliness, in your time and entertainment in contrast to spiritual things. Or you might not be concerned about your interest in a novel and easier approach to Christianity. But you should be. Let's pray. Lord, you know, you know the temptations that were are facing us. You know our wounds. You know our spiritual attacks. Father, give us eyes to see that none of us would be blind to where we're being spiritually injured, to where we're spiritually bleeding. And help us not to be blind to one another, that we would not be content just to see casualties on the battlefield just because we're in a war, but that we'd be stirred up to want every man to make it home. Every woman, every child to make it home alive. And that we would each individually make it our responsibility to make sure that takes place. And we would devote ourselves to one another more purposefully. And we devote ourselves to the Word and we devote ourselves to praying for one another. And Lord, as a church, as we grow in our In our maturity, we would also just grow in our love for the lost. That we would not just be a church of fatheads or of servants, just servants, or just those who know the Bible well, but but Lord, that we'd be a church that is dominated by biblical love, not just strong affection, but sacrificial, selfless desire to see people come to know you and be built up in you. Lord, we ask these things because we know we can't do it on our own. We beg for grace that you would make us to be the church that you've called us to be. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.